Good morning. Let's start our morning off with prayer. Lord, at no other time are my weaknesses and my imperfections so plain to me as when I approach presenting your flawless and strong word to your people. Lord, get me out of the way today. Pray that your glory would shine. Lord, help us to anticipate Jesus today. Help us to be excited for him, for his coming. We thank you so much for his gift. We thank you for your humility, for your obedience, and for your coming. And we thank you, Lord, that you are always faithful to us. Help us this, Lord, this, this day to, to learn from your glorious word. And Lord, use this broken vessel to, to bring your truth to your people. In your great name, amen. So I happen to be a, a middle school teacher. And just recently, for my Bible class with my middle schoolers, we decided to, to watch a film based on the book Pilgrim's Progress. Now, if you know much about Pilgrim's Progress, you know that it was written by a man who was in prison for his faith, and it was written to portray the journey of the Christian in their walk. Now, at the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, we see a man named Christian. Uh, the, the author had a way of hitting names on the head. Uh, and Christian, again, represents the Christian, and he was living in the city of destruction, which, as I'm sure you can guess, was a city destined for destruction. And it was filled with sin and hate and thieving and lies. And as Christian was going about his daily life, living in this, this sorrow and this sadness and in a place where there is no life, he stumbles upon a book and in this book are the words of the king. And as he is reading the book, he sees life for the first time ever. He sees mercy, he sees peace, he sees hope in a place where he never had hope. And as he's reading these words, the burden of the king comes upon him increasingly more and more until the point where he has to leave. And he goes up to his wife and says, Christiana, the, the wife of Christian is Christiana, yes. Um, and he goes up to her and says, Christiana, come with me. Bring the boys. Let's go on this journey. Let's go and follow the king's words. And she doesn't believe him. She doesn't think that they're true. And so she refuses to come with. And so Christian, in his burdened state to follow the words of the king, leaves everything. He walks away from everything he knows onto a path where, because of what he had read, he knows there's going to be trials. He knows there's going to be difficulties. But he has a promise in the end. He knows the celestial city is at the end because he believes the words of the king. And after all these difficulties, after all these trials, he reaches the end of his journey and he meets the good shepherd. He meets Jesus. 
And he realizes that every step along the way, the king was faithful to him. The king's words never led him astray. And in our story today, in our passage today, we're going to see how this man, Abram, who was called by God, leaves at the word of this great king. And in the end, his faith is seen as righteousness, and he is not led astray. Now, as we approach this passage in Genesis chapter 12, which is the the beginning, again, of Abraham's story, at this point he's known as Abram, we could approach this passage simply looking at the passage. But I really want to embrace Advent today. I, I love the Christmas season. I love the Advent season. And so, as we go through this passage, as we go through each step, we're going we're gonna to break it down into three sections. I want to trace what we see in this passage through the story of Israel and then to Jesus, see how Jesus ultimately fulfills what we see here in this passage. And then finally, I want to bring it through to how that influences us today. And in my considering and thinking about how to show you that I really want to help us anticipate Jesus this season, I really want to help us get excited for the coming of Jesus, um, I, I couldn't really figure out a great way to do it, uh, but sitting in the seat today listening to the worship music, God brought to mind a, uh, a story from my own life that I'm going to share. I think I was somewhere between 10 and 12, I don't remember the exact age, but every year on Christmas morning, my father would read the Christmas story to us from the book of Luke. And normally he would read it, and we all, you know, us three boys are sitting there, okay, I want to open presents, I want to open presents, why, why are we reading this, let's go. Um, but this specific year, God decided to move in me. And I broke down. I actually had to leave the living room. I walked into our kitchen, I was just crying uncontrollably. And I could hear my brothers being like, Mom, why is he crying? What's wrong? And my parents trying to explain to them, it's not for sorrow, it's for joy. And that's what I want us to experience this year. I want us to experience the joy at the coming of Jesus, so much so that to the world around us, it looks like sorrow because of how joyful we are and how overwhelmed we are at the coming of Jesus. So, as we approach this passage then, in light of Abram leaving everything and seeing his faithfulness and that being the theme of this passage, I want to propose that what we can learn from this passage is that leaving everything to follow God shows our trust in his faithfulness. Again, leaving everything to follow God shows our trust in his faithfulness. And that's really what Abram does in this passage, right? He leaves what we will see as everything to follow God and his trust in God's faithfulness is credited to him as righteousness. Now, the first section that we're going to look at is just verse 1. And verse 1 is telling us that God's call to Abram anticipates Jesus' story. And this is, again, in light of Advent. But in light of Advent, this first verse is showing us that God's call to Abram anticipates Jesus' story. You're going to hear that word anticipates a lot today. Because uh, it's a very powerful word that I want us to, I want us to get into that field. Um, and before we even read the first verse, what I want us to realize is the Bible doesn't tell us much about Abram. 
All we know about Abram from this passage is simply that he was a guy wandering around, living his life, and then God said, hey, you. And then we get this passage. But one other thing that we know about Abram from later on in his story, granted, but we do know about this about him, is that he and his wife, while Abram was 75 and Sarai was 65, they had no children. They had no children. And to us, you know, we, that, that may not be a crazy thing at first to hear, but for them, that was a big deal for multiple reasons. They wanted their name to live on, yes, and also they didn't have anything like social security or anything like that. Their children were their security. Their children were the ones to take care of them when, as they got older. There was a lot of reasons for Abram to want children, and yet, again, he did not have children. So bear that in mind as we begin reading this passage. So verse one, read it with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now you can imagine Abram's just walking around his fields or maybe he's eating dinner. Maybe God decided to wake him up in the middle of the night. I don't know. But I do know that God decided to speak to Abram. And the first word that God says to Abram is actually a command. He says, go. That's a, that's a very powerful command that we will see we are given as well. Go from what you know in order to follow the Lord. And what is Abram going from? Going, he's going from his country and his kindred and his father's house. He's leaving behind everything he has. And as we're going to see, this, this command is the first of two commands. And the second command is going to complement this first command. So bear that in mind as well. We'll get there uh, as we get to the second part. But again, as we will see in verses 4 through 6, Abram doesn't actually leave everything at the top of his story, at the very start of his story. He brings his family. He brings his possessions. He brings uh, servants. He brings what he had acquired when he was living in the land that, that he grew up in. But we know from later on in his story, especially from the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, where he is willing to give up the son, this promised son, that he had waited a quarter of a century to have. That because he was willing to give up Isaac, he, goes, he gets to the point where he is willing to give up everything that he has in order to follow this God who has promised him everything. Okay, so then we know that Abram is going from his family, from his father's house, and where is he going? I'm sure at this point he's thinking, yes, I'm going to get something way better. And then God says, to the land that I will show you. He doesn't even give him details. He's just like, just go over here. You'll, you'll see. We'll get there. And so this shows even more the incredible nature of Abram's faith, how he believes God at his word, just like we saw a Christian believe God at his word, or the king at his word. Now, again, I, wanted to, I want to trace this story through to Jesus, passing through the stories of Israel as well. So let's do that. Just like Abram left everything, we see many heroes of the faith in the Old Testament leaving much to follow the Lord. For instance, story of Joseph. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, you know he didn't decide to leave everything. He was kind of sold into slavery by his brothers. But in leaving everything, he still decided to have faith in God, 
to trust in him, to rely on the strength of his king. And as he did so, God used Joseph as an incredible blessing to those around him. And he blessed Joseph as well. What about the story of Moses? Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh as an adopted son of Pharaoh. And he had everything. Egypt was an amazing, powerful land at this time. And Moses had access to the greatest luxuries of that time, the the greatest teachings of that time, the greatest pleasures at that time. And instead of staying there, instead of staying in the the sins and the pleasures of that land, as we learn from, from Hebrews, he decides to leave all of that and follow his king and follow his God. And he even winds up wandering 40 years in the wilderness with a complaining, stiff-necked people. But his reward not only was eternal life, but he also got to be with God. We, we, are, we learn from Moses' story, nobody else in all of Israel's history met God face-to-face like, like Moses did. It's an amazing story. And now because of his sacrifice, Moses is the greatest prophet besides Jesus in all of Israel's history. Well, we've talked about a couple men. How about Ruth, though? Let's think about Ruth for a second. What did she leave? She wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Moabitess, one of the enemies of Israel. But when her husband, well, when her would-be husband, came from Israel in the midst of a famine, and she married him, and then her husband dies, her father-in-law dies, her brother-in-law dies, everybody dies. Everybody, she loses everybody except for her mother-in-law. And in order to follow the great Lord and God and Savior, she follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel. And because of her sacrifice, she actually is one of the, uh, the, the matriarchs of Jesus. She's actually the great-grandmother of David. Uh, one final quick story. How about, how about David himself? He left much to follow God. And because of his sacrifice, he is known as the great king who is after God's own heart. So we've traced this through. We've seen Abram's sacrifices. We've seen the sacrifices of the heroes of faith. And how about Jesus himself? Does Jesus give up much? Well, I would say Jesus gives up more than any of us ever could. Yes, in his earthly ministry, he leaves his home and his, his town in order to travel around Israel and present the good news to people. But even more so, Jesus gives up his divinity well, not all of it, but he lays part of it aside. We know this from Philippians 2. He lays part of his divinity aside in order to be with us, in order to make himself a suitable sacrifice for his people, to bring a people to himself. So in light of all of these heroes of the faith who have gone before us and laid a path for us to, sh- to show us what it means to set things aside for God, to give things up for God, what should our response be? Well, we are even commanded by Jesus himself in Matthew 8, 34. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. We are commanded to take up our cross and follow him. That's a bold statement. That's a powerful statement. Taking up your cross, that's sacrificing anything and everything you need to to follow the king. A, one of the, uh, a famous 
missionary by the name of Jim Elliott took this to heart. He walked away from everything he had. He walked away from everything he knew. He brought his family with him, and he entered into a very dangerous and life-threatening situation where he wanted to bring the gospel to those who didn't know the gospel. And when he was asked about it, Jim Elliott famously states, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So he followed the example of so many before him, and he said, you know what? I'm going to give up what I need to in order to honor the king. So then my question to us is, what do we have to give up? It could be a difficult question. It could be a very challenging question, because yes, we ought to give up the sins that we delve into. We ought to give up drunkenness. We ought to give up lust. We ought to give up these, these lying, these stealing, these, these, these sins that we know are sins. But not everything the heroes of the faith gave up were sinful. They were simply things that took them and kept them from doing what God wanted them to do. So then examine yourself. What do you have to give up? What do I have to give up? Are we spending too much time maybe sitting in front of our TVs? Are we spending too much time playing a video game or watching our phones? Is money a vice for you? There are many, many vices that, that don't seem sinful at first, but we have to challenge ourselves. Do we have to give these up? So I challenge you, examine yourself today. It's not an easy thing, but I would challenge you to do so. Okay, so just as Abram gave things up, so then we will see um, God blessing him in light of the sacrifices that he is making, and we see that in this next section. So the next two verses are going to be our next section, and they're going to show us, again in light of Advent, that God's promise to Abram anticipates Jesus' coming. God's promise to Abram anticipates Jesus' coming. Now, the blessing that God gives Abram is actually in seven statements. And I want you guys to try to see if you can point out uh, and see those seven statements as we read through it. So, verses two through three. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there are seven statements here. Uh, does, now, if you, if you know much about the number seven, it may ring a bell with creation. It may ring a bell with the perfect number of God um, or God's number, the, the complete number, the full number. Is that what this passage is trying to get at? Maybe. I like to think so, uh, that this, this blessing from God is complete or full in some way. But also, I want us to, to notice that this blessing is also in three phases. We have the first three statements that constitute one phrase where we're going to see that God is blessing Abram specifically. The blessing is to Abram specifically. But then we have the fourth blessing that kind of acts as a transition between the first phase and the second phase. And then the last three blessings are geared toward God using Abram to bless the world around him. So let's look at that together. First, we see this first statement, and I will make of you a great nation. 
Do we see this in, in, uh, in the scriptures? Well, yes, we do. And we're, we're gonna talk about that more in a second, but we see that with Israel. But more immediately, what do you guys think Abram would have felt when he heard this? This guy who wants a son and has no heir, and then he hears, hey, God's gonna make a great nation of me. That would have been an exciting moment for Abram. He may have been thinking, yes, he can't make a great nation of me if I don't have any kids. God's gonna give me a a child. You can almost feel his excitement even though God hasn't explicitly said, you're gonna have a kid yet. Then the next statement, God's gonna bless him. And we see Abram being a very blessed person throughout his life. Uh, In fact, even when, when Abram saves Lot, his, his nephew, after Lot had been taken captive. This happens a few chapters after uh, Genesis chapter 12. When he comes back from that, there's a, a very short story about a man named Melchizedek who comes up to Abram. And Melchizedek takes, whether he knows his blessing or not, he blesses Abram, showing very clearly how blessed Abram is. Then this third statement, that God will make Abram's name great. And this almost takes a step past or even further than making Abram a great nation. Now Abram is thinking, hey, not only is a great nation going to come from me, but my name is going to be known from that nation. My name is going to become great from that nation. So we see how exciting this, these first three blessings can be for Abram as he is excited about a possible heir, about a son, about becoming a great nation. Now let's trace this through again through Israel. Do we see this partially fulfilled in Israel? Well, yes, we do. Israel becomes a very great nation, and they become a very blessed nation. Um, we see they, them becoming a great nation as they leave Egypt, right? They, they started there 70 people 400 years beforehand, and then as they leave Egypt, they are a great multitude, a strong nation. And how do we see them being blessed? Well, God protects them. God guides them out of Egypt. God feeds them in the wilderness. And then we again see Abram's name becoming great through this people of Israel. So we see Israel partially fulfilling this, but again, do we see Jesus ultimately fulfilling this, more fully fulfilling this? Well, yes, we do. Jesus does not become does not make a great physical nation. He makes an even greater spiritual nation, a nation in which every individual is blessed with eternal life. This is the church. And the church, I would argue, makes Abram's name even more well-known, even greater. Okay, so we've talked about this first phase. What about this, this transition that I hinted at? Well, this transition, this, this statement, the fourth statement that says, so that you will be a blessing, uh, it's, it's a little bit weird to, to translate from the Hebrew because the Hebrew is actually a command here as well. This is the second command in this passage. So the, again, the first command was go. God tells Abram, go. And then here, you could actually look at this, this statement as, and be a blessing. Instead of, so that you will be a blessing, you can kind of feel God being like, be a blessing. You're going to be a blessing. Do it. Be a blessing. It's, again, a weird statement. <laughs> That's why I repeat it so many times. Um, but how does this second command connect with the first command? There, the way Hebrew commands work, 
there is a, a, a rare construction that, that we see here that allows the first command to be a cause and effect statement with the second command. So the first command, go, is the cause. It is allowing something to happen. And because Abram goes, we can get the effect. The effect is that Abram will be a blessing. So again, this is that transition phase from God's blessing Abram, and now he's gonna use Abram to bless the people around him. So, how does he do that? Verse three, so now we're in the third phase. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, do we see in the story of Genesis and in Abram's story how God blesses those who bless Abram? Yes, we do. Uh, we see it most clearly in his, some of his children. So, for instance, the story of Jacob and Laban. In the story of Jacob and Laban, uh, Jacob has, so Laban is uh, Jacob's uncle. And he, Jacob has left his family to go to Laban and find a wife. And he actually ends up marrying both of Laban's daughters, as we know, they are, they are Leah and Rachel. And as he is working for Laban and serving him for his two daughters, at one point, Laban realizes, hey, I am a very blessed person through Jacob. And Laban actually goes up to Jacob and says, hey, God has blessed me through you. Because of you, I am blessed by God. Do we see it elsewhere? Well, again, in Joseph's story, we see God's blessing through Abram's children stretching out to those around them. Joseph has an incredible story of blessing. He is, yes, taken away from his family, but then he is a slave in Potiphar's house. And because of the blessing of everything that he touches, it's such a powerful blessing, Potiphar sees it. And he makes Joseph head over his whole house so that Joseph can get into everything and bless everything. And then he is wrongly accused and put in prison, and he blesses the people in prison. He rises to the top of prison. Who does that happen to? Um, and then he is so worthy of note in prison that he is taken out of prison to come up to Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. And he becomes second in all of Egypt and blesses a nation and blesses the other nations around them by letting them not starve during a famine. So we see very clearly these blessings that God has given to Abram, stretching out even from his children to those around them. How about the, the, the less um, optimistic phrase, I will dishonor those who curse you, or those who dishonor you I will curse. We actually see that in the very next story in Genesis. The very next story is where Abram and Sarai go to Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, Abram says, I have a very beautiful wife, and I don't want to be killed so that they can get her, so I'm going to call her my sister. And the king of Egypt is like, hey, she's very beautiful. And she takes her, uh, he takes her, I should say, and brings her into his house. And because he takes her, even accidentally dishonoring Abram, God still curses that household. God still takes justice on that household. How about this last phrase, and all the nations shall be blessed through Abram. It's kind of hard to see this in Abram's story because he's one person, but we can see it more clearly through, through Israel itself. How do we see this through Israel? Well, first of all, I want you guys to, if you guys can picture Israel on a map. 
Israel is a great connecting point between Egypt and all of Africa and the Middle East and Asia and Europe. And God strategically placed them there so that when people were traveling to and fro, Israel would be a a very popular travel point and they would be positioned to bless the nations around them, to spread the word of God. People would come through Israel, they would hear about this great Lord and Savior and King and God, and they would go back to their home or to wherever they were going and tell other people about it because of the joyous faithfulness of these people. Now, unfortunately, we don't really see that happening in Israel. However, many scholars believe that that is why Israel was placed where they were placed. Now, how does Jesus fulfill these aspects? Well, we know that Jesus is a, a blessing to the world because he gives us eternal life. His shed blood makes us a great spiritual nation for him. We are given freedom from sin and from death. And yet, while greater blessing comes from Jesus, so also does greater condemnation. So not only are we blessed more through Jesus, but also because the world now has a clear offering of eternal life, for those who reject him, there is a clear condemnation. So we have both the greater blessing of Jesus and the greater justice of Jesus that, we, that pulls out both this blessing and this curse aspect. How about this last phrase? And the nations shall be blessed. The phrase in Hebrew, where it says the nation shall be blessed, uh, the, the English actually gets it, that it takes this idea very well in this passage, that it's a passive phrase. The nation shall be blessed from you. And that seems to indicate that instead of Abram doing the blessing, he is being used as a tool or an intermediary for God to bless the nations. And this seems to point forward to Jesus because it's not Abram, it's not his children that are gonna bless the world. It is when God intervenes and steps in and then all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we see that through Jesus. In fact, I wanna argue that we as Christians are supposed to be a blessing to everyone around us. Not only to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to other people that we meet, whether it be at a, a party or, a, uh, or at your work or wherever you may meet somebody who does not believe in Christ, I think we should be a blessing to them as well. We should show them the love of Christ, the love of God, the joy that we have inside of us because of what he's done for us. And then perhaps that could be a great witness for them to, to come to Christ as well and enter into this great spiritual nation. Okay, so... We have seen from the the first phase of this that God's call to Abram anticipates Jesus, Jesus' story. Then, in the the next two verses, we saw how God's promise to Abram anticipates Jesus' coming, and we talked about how Jesus fulfills these things. Now we get to the the last phase, which is verses four through nine. And in this section, we're gonna see that Abram's faith in God anticipates Jesus' obedience. So let's read this passage together. So, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. 
When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So finally we get action. We get Abram, after this, the, the blessing from God and after the commands of God, Abram gets a chance to obey. And we see that he does obey. We are not told if he argued. We're not told if he complained. All we're told is he had faith. He obeyed. He listened to God and traveled away. He followed what God had for him. And as he went, right, we see a lot of, of uh, lands and cities and places that he passed through. Um, and then at the end of his story, at the end of this uh, section, we get to see how Abram actually built altars to the Lord to show his, his thankfulness toward the Lord for what he had promised him and for guiding him away um, to a, what seemed to be a better promise and a better life. And we can see how, because of Abram's faith, if we look at the, the great hall of faith that appears in Hebrews 11, he is there. Abram's story is told in the great hall of faith because of the greatness and the, the immensity of his faith in God. And in fact, Abram's story is one of the longest in, in Hebrews chapter 11, where, again, all these heroes of the faith are talked about. And like, like we said earlier, we talked about how Abram does bring a lot of things with him, but again, we know from later on in his life when he is willing to sacrifice his own son that he gets to the point where he is willing to give up the greatest of his possessions. So, how do we see then Jesus fulfilling this aspect where, where Abram leaves things, where Abram leaves what he had. Well, again, I want to I draw out a little bit more what Philippians chapter 2 has to say about what Jesus gives up. In Philippians 2, we see Paul, it's almost like he's writing a song in Philippians chapter 2, and he says, talking about Jesus, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we see very clearly how Jesus emptied himself of parts of his divinity so that he could take on human form and become a sacrifice for us. And then even more so, we see that, to continue on in chapter 2 of Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Jesus was very obedient to the Lord, just as Abram was in this section. Now, Jesus' obedience was doubtlessly far greater than Abram's, but we still see how Abram's obedience here and his faith in God foreshadows and looks toward how Jesus will obey and follow what the Lord has for him. Now, I want to bring out verse 7 in this section. Let's read that again. Verse seven says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. To your offspring I will give this land. In Genesis 3 that was read for us this morning, Paul talks about this verse. Paul brings out how this offspring 
is not offsprings. It is not the children that are going to come from Abram. It's not this nation that's going to come from Abram. It is offspring. It is a singular person. And we actually, this is not the first time we see this singular offspring promised in Genesis. This is actually the second time. The first time was last week when Pastor Steve brought us to, uh, through Genesis chapter 3. This great offspring who is to be anticipated is first talked about in Genesis 3 as the one who is to crush the head of the serpent. And so you can almost feel this anticipation that builds throughout the Old Testament thinking of this offspring. And I want to walk through that together. So again, Genesis chapter 3, this offspring, this singular one promise offspring is going to come from Adam and Eve and is going to crush the head of the serpent. And we don't know who he's going to be. We just know he's going to come from Adam and Eve. And I mean, everybody came from Adam and Eve, so it could be anybody, right? And you can just almost feel how Adam and Eve are thinking, when is this, when is this offspring going to come? When are we going to see this promised one who is going to free us from the wrongdoing that we have entered into? And then they have Cain and Abel. And they see Abel and how he is humble and serving the Lord and sacrificing to God. And perhaps they were thinking, is this the one? Is this the anticipated offspring? But no, he gets killed by his brother. Okay, well then, let's have another, uh, another child. His name is Seth. Perhaps it's this child the replacement of the one who was so faithful. But no, it's not Seth either. And the line continues. We have genealogies upon genealogies in Genesis. And then we get to, to Abram's story. And finally, this idea of the offspring is brought back up. And we know now it's not just going to come from Adam and Eve. It's not just going to be anybody. It's going to come from the line of Abram. And he's going to bless the nations. So Abram may be thinking, who is this offspring? Who's going to come? Well, God gave me a child when I didn't think I'd have one. It's this promised son, Isaac. Is he the one? Is he the one who is going to save us from our fallen nature? Is he the one who is going to to bless the nature? But no, it's not Isaac. Well, how about Jacob, the the favored of these twins? Is he the one who is going to to bless the world, to bless the nation? No. It's not Jacob. What about Joseph, the youngest favored son among among these 12 boys? No, it's, it's not Joseph either, even though he does bless many. Okay, so then you continue on with this, these offspring and these stories, and so many come, and there are greater um, children than others, people like Moses or Aaron or Levi, but still nobody fits the bill. And then, we get to David, who we're going to see is promised an offspring. And this offspring, now we know, is going to come from David. And then David has this very wise and powerful son, Solomon. Is he the one? But no, he's not. And then from Solomon's line, we see all of these sinful, fallen kings who reject God. But there were some righteous ones in there. Is it going to be Hezekiah? Is it going to be Josiah? No, it's not. And yet we also get the prophets hinting at one to come who is going to be great and free us from our sins. Perhaps most famous among them being Isaiah when he talks about this this servant who is going to 
suffer for the transgressions of his people. And then after all these prophecies, after all of this anticipation, there is silence for hundreds of years where nobody hears anything about this offspring. And then finally we get an angel approaching a virgin. And as he does, he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And your child will inherit the throne of his father, David. Finally, after thousands of years of waiting, we get this anticipated offspring. And he is so much greater than anything we could have ever hoped for. And he's greater not because he's so much stronger though he is, not because he's so much wiser though he is, but because instead of freeing his people from the physical abuse that they may have taken from the Romans or other nations, he is not a physical conqueror, but a spiritual conqueror. One who dies for his people and frees everyone who accepts him from the life of sin and death in which they were stuck. So, as you go through this holiday season, as you go through this Christmas season, remember that Jesus, the Jesus that we know, was anticipated for so long and was looked forward to for so long. They didn't know who it was going to be, but we do, and we can celebrate that. So, in response to this, let your faith be fortified. Let your faith be strengthened. Because if God can be faithful over thousands of years where people weren't sure who this offspring was going to be, and yet he was faithful to the end, if he was faithful in that, you know he's going to be faithful to you. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you so much for bringing us to this passage and for helping us to look forward to Jesus. God, I pray that our joy and our excitement over who Jesus is would be amplified this season and that you would give us wisdom in the secret place to know the greatness of your love for us. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Bless us as we go through our week. In your beautiful name, amen.